We've actually been in a sermon series on the kingdom of God, and one of the things that we've been talking about is how this kingdom is so different than the value systems, the culture around us, and even as New Yorkers, the way that we're taught to believe and value certain things. Uh, what is the kingdom of God like? And that was the question that we asked a couple of weeks ago when we were in this sermon series. And of course, Sarah kicked off the sermon series three weeks ago, really talking about how the thing about a kingdom, even if that language may feel archaic, is this idea that of, of the kingdoms of our lives and the world that we live in and the world that we inhabit, um, it really is about who is the rightful king. And one of the invitations that we've been given is that when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is how Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And so in many ways, we have been invited then, and whether you're someone who's not of faith or whether you're someone who's been a Christian for a long while, is really the invitation of the Christian journey is to say, Jesus, will you take your rightful place as our king? And what does that mean for us? Uh, again, a couple weeks ago, we examined this idea of what is the kingdom like? And we talked about the Beatitudes, how Jesus, he talks about how blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we juxtapose that with this idea of today when we think about this word being blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Oh, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who invested in tech stocks over the last year and a half. Right? Like those are the people who are blessed. Blessed are the beautiful. And yet how the kingdom of God is so different and it invites us into a different value system and a different way of looking at the world in a, day, in a way that, that changes the way we make our decisions, the way that we raise our kids, the way that we want to live and inhabit this world. And today we're going to talk about this idea of kingdom prayer. Now, if you're, again, if you're not someone who comes from a spiritual background or religious background, prayer is simply this idea of communion with God, of a relationship with God, having this conversation where we listen to God and where we ask him things and where we say things things to God. It's basically having this living relationship with this king. So what does kingdom prayer look like? Well, here's what Jesus does, right? Look at what he says when he invites his disciples. He actually gives them a model of what prayer looks like. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's it. Now, you know what's so startling? I think the first thing that kind of jumped out to me was I read this prayer. Is basically, this prayer is so short. You know, and I'm like, you know, oftentimes in church settings or in religious settings, we get used to these long, drawn out prayers where people are praying for a long time and, uh, and before meals where we're praying for all these world changing things. And yet here in this prayer, the model of prayer that Jesus gives to us, it's incredibly short. In fact, as Kathy was reading the scriptures for us, maybe you, like, you, you heard her read the prayer and then you were like, oh, is that, is that it for the scripture reading? Because there have been some times in our church where we've read whole chunks of scripture and you've been wondering like, oh, is this supposed to be a little longer than that? But no, actually the model prayer that Jesus gives to us is actually incredibly short. It's incredibly short. Now, what does that reveal to us about prayer? Well, first of all, it's that prayer is not about the quantity of our words. But it's actually about the quality of our disposition. It's not these long, drawn-out soliloquies. And when people say, oh, you know, this is, I, I don't know how to pray. Well, let me tell you, it's actually an invitation to just having this relationship where it's not really about the quantity of words or the eloquence of words, but rather 
Prayer is about the quality of a disposition. Now, what do I mean about the quality of a disposition? Now, we're not going to go over every single item of this prayer today, but I wanted to actually talk about one theme of this prayer because, you see, the prayer begins with first, our Father who art in heaven, and then it basically says, hallowed be thy name or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's how the prayer actually begins. You see, the prayer begins with that quality of disposition that's the invitation of how are we to relate to God and how are we to pray to Him. The quality of the disposition is first of basically coming to this uh, realization and this confession and this proclamation that it's really our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, not my name. Your kingdom, not my kingdom. Your will, and not my will. Now, as someone who's a professional clergyman, you know, this oftentimes, what I often kind of think about when it comes to prayer is, I think about prayer as a way in which God can answer prayers and deliver me from stuff. You know, where I can ask him for things like, I'm like, God, please let the six train come. Even though I was late getting here, please just let it come right now. Right? Like, oh, God, please, please let me, even though I I didn't study for this exam, just supernaturally, will you fill my mind with knowledge for this biology test? Uh, Like you've never done that before. Right? I mean, this is often what, what precipitates prayer is this disposition of need where we come to God, where we ask him for things. And yet, here's a disposition that we're invited to from the very start when Jesus says, this is what prayer is about. You see, it's a disposition where before anything else, we basically say, God, your name, not my name. Now, when I think about this idea of your name and not my name, to tell you the truth, oftentimes when I think about my own life and journey, my name matters a whole lot. And what do I mean by that? I care so much about what people think about when they, when they say my name. I want them to think well of me. I want them to think that I'm a great person, that I'm a great pastor, that I'm someone who's kind and generous and you know, that I'm fun to be around. Like so much of my life has been spent as a people pleaser. Now part of that comes from my family of origin. I grew up with three brothers and I was the youngest of them. And I had a twin brother, brother who was uh, really an exceptional guy And so a lot of me wanted to really please people to somehow garner more attention for myself. And so people pleasing has been in my DNA. I mean, to illustrate what this is like, as I was thinking about this idea of my name and how much my name matters, I remember um, when Uber came out, the taxi cab service, when Uber came out, I remember I I used it for a couple of years and I didn't really snoop around the app that much, but there came this moment when I remember I called the cab and then I was like, oh, let me look at my profile. I looked at my profile. And uh, I pressed on it, and I saw a number next to my name. And it was the first time that I realized, like, I don't know if you know this, but we get rated as well from drivers. Do do you all know that? Uh, Okay, yeah, maybe I was late to the game. But I was mortified, and the number next to my name was 4.2. I know, I know, I know. Guys, I... See, now, you all are judging me right now. <laughs> Listen, I give tips and stuff, and like I, but I remember just being, I was like, 4.2. Oh my, I, and like, all of a sudden, like this mental catalog of every single ride that I had taken over the past two years, I'm like, was it this person? Like, I, I thought I was generous. 
oh man, I, I must have done something to offend this person. Or there was that one person where, you know, like I, I start going through this mental catalog wondering how did I offend people so that someone gave me a rating less than five, you know? And I just, and then I asked my wife, Tina, I was like, did you know they rate you? Did you know this? She goes, of I, I didn't know that. So I, I looked up her rating and it was 4.9. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on? 4.2. And so I, I just remember it just became my goal to fix this, to somehow change this. And as I'm thinking about this idea of my name, like I care so deeply about it that anonymous drivers on Uber, like I just, I wanted to change this. I wanted them to know how, how Drew, Andrew Hyun is like a really nice person and participant. And that was something else. Um, but isn't it interesting how much my name matters and how much people pleasing matters to me? And so the invitation though for each one of us is to say, God, your name, not my name, your kingdom not my kingdom, when it comes to kingdoms, when it comes to what are the things that we're building for? What are the things that we're trying to build? Is it building our own kingdom? You know, even as I, as a pastor at Hope Midtown, as I think about what we're building here as a community of faith on mission, I often have to pray this prayer. God, it's about your kingdom. And it's not about this kingdom that somehow is building a kingdom where the name of this church or the ways that what we're known for or this kingdom, the things that I think that we should do rather than submitting and surrendering to God and his kingdom. Or when we say, your will, not my will. How oftentimes I am such a control person. I love spreadsheets and continuing to, to produce spreadsheets that have strategic plans with them and things like that. I mean, one of my favorite moments in team meetings is when someone says, you know what? We should start a, a Google sheet for that. And I'm like, already did. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's how much of a control freak I am. And yet here, the invitation, when we give this prayer, is God, your name, your kingdom, your will. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest, uh, in his book, Adam's Return, he talks about five truths that we are to embrace to actually live into the deeper journey of freedom and significance and purpose that we all long for. And so in his book, he's got these five truths. And oftentimes I love reminding our congregation of these five truths because if I could think of a demographic where these five truths are for us, I would say it's for us here in Midtown Manhattan and New York City because this city wants to continue to fill us with all sorts of different kinds of truths. And what I love about these truths is they remind us of what is significant. And he talks about to, to actually lead into a life of deeper significance, purpose, meaning, humility. He says, we need to embrace these five truths. So I thought I'd go over these five truths yet again with us. Here's truth number one. Life is hard. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, life is hard? <laughs> you know, I was listening to this podcast earlier this week, and this podcast was talking about how in recent generations, the statistics related to mental health, depression, and anxiety have skyrocketed. 
And as they've skyrocketed, you know, one of the things that the person, the researcher from San Diego was kind of talking about is like, why has it, you know, why is it that in generations where technology has advanced and the younger generations are more anxious than ever and more depressed than ever, even with so much advancement in society and so much wealth that has been generated. And so I was talking to a young person earlier and I was saying, I asked him the question, what do you think? Why, why do you think that's the case that there's depression is at an all time high? And he said to me, you know, I think it's because growing up, I was sold this story that life is supposed to be pleasant and joyful and everything is supposed to turn out right. And then I actually experienced life. And it was hard and painful and heartbreaking. And so much of my reality didn't match what that expectation was. And I think for a lot of young people, there's this mismatched expectation between what is true about life and what I'm told that I will experience. I mean, isn't it true though? Social media and media itself continues to propagate this view that life is basically our best vacations. And that's what we think about, is that everyone else's life is full of the most delicious Instagrammable meals. I hate those people. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. If that's you, that's great. I'm just, I'm just messing, just messing with you, you know. But yeah, I mean, isn't it like that? Like there's this illusion that life is, but here's one of the truths that we're to embrace is that life is hard. You know, in fact, Jesus himself would give this teaching. He would say, in this world, you will have trouble. You'll have trouble. And one of the truths that we're supposed to embrace is this idea that, you know what? Life is hard. And if you look through the story of scripture, and if any of you, you were to look through the story of the early church, it's stories of people of immense struggle and difficulty and wondering how God works in the midst of the most painful, difficult circumstances. But that's really what faith is all about, right? Is, is faith robust enough? Not when times are good, but when times are bad. And one of the things that we're to embrace is this truth that life is hard. Truth number two is you are not important. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not important. <laughs> you are not important. Some of you had too much fun with that. You are not important. I mean, isn't it true though? Like sometimes I, I get so caught up in my own self-importance and self-absorption. I, I really think that everything is like should center around me and but if you just imagine our lives in the glimpse in like just like in, in the panoply of eternity or in history just how small our lives are and yet for some reason I, I tend to think of myself as being so important and one of the truths that we're invited to to embrace is to is to embrace the idea that I am not important I'm not important. Number three, life is hard. You are not important, but life is not about you. Turn to your neighbor and say, life is not about you. <laughs> it's about the kids. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, <laughs> tell your kids this later on. Life is not about you. Yeah, life is not about you. That this is the same idea of you are not important. So much of me, I get so self-absorbed that I think that life is about me. Life is about me and my own comfort, my own kingdom, my own name, my own will. 
And really the invitation of the journey with God is to believe that actually it's not about me. There's so many times when I get worked up about life and uh, Tina, my wife, has to remind me like there are things like I'll get so offended personally about something. I'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe this person said this. And uh, or, I can't believe you said this, Tina. And Tina will be like, hey, like there was no intent behind that. Like there was not, this, I, you're reading this situation wrong. I'm like, I'm reading it just right. And she's like, no, no, no. Yeah, I think you're taking it a little bit personal. But personal. I'm like, I'm not taking it personal. And she's like, no, no, no. I, you know, this, this actually, this situation, it's really not, it's not about you. It's not about you. And yet it's so easy to become so preoccupied with me. My own self, my own wants, my own wishes, my own needs. And yet the invitation is to believe that life is not about you. Number four, you are not in control. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not in control. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are like, I'm not going to say that because I hate this sermon already. You know? But hey, you are not in control. You know, one of the things I appreciate so much about the 12-step movement of recovery is how step number one is I am powerless. I'm powerless over this addiction. And the reason why, it's because it's an admission that I am not the one that's in control, but instead I need to submit to this belief that I am powerless. I am limited. I am finite. I am a human being. But I entrust myself to a higher power. Because, again, the, the mark of what true spirituality looks like is really embracing this idea that I am not in control. Number five, you are going to die. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are going to die. That's right, you are going to die. And I'm going to die. In his book, uh, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker, he writes about how so much of what drives human beings is this denial of death of chasing after kind of this immortality that each of us think, especially as young people, when we, when we think that we are invincible against anything. And what's so fascinating about this spiritual truth that we are to embrace is we're supposed to actually embrace this truth that you are going to die. From dust you have come to dust you will return, the scriptures say. Now really, all five of these truths... I mean, these truths are basically truths that demonstrate to us the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. This disposition of your name, your kingdom, your will. Because don't you see, when we actually begin to embrace these truths, when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're doing is we're making a kingdom prayer that begins with a posture of surrender. Surrendering my need and my name to be God, my kingdom to be God, my ways and my will to be the most important ways or will, but to instead to surrender. And so what kingdom prayer is all about is surrendering before God. Last week, uh, when Daryl was preaching, I, I gave, at the end of it, I, I talked about this image, and it's this image of open hands, 
when you open your hands. And Henry, Henry Nouwen, he writes this book, and it's called Praying with Open Hands. And what the image is, and he basically talks about how praying with open hands is fundamentally different than p- praying with clenched fists. But oftentimes when we pray, we often pray, maybe not physically with clenched fists, but our disposition is one in which we're praying with clenched fists. So it's like, God, do this for me. God, this is how I need you to move in my life. This is how I need you to move in my family's life. This is how I need you to to move in my child's life or in my boss's life or in my bank account. And what he says is, what if the invitation to each one of us the, the God-given invitation to each one of us is actually to pray with open hands instead of clenched fists. To come before God to open up our hands. Now, here's the thing. I'd say amongst this crowd, this is one of the hardest things to do because here's what you have been told and the reason why you probably even moved to the city is because you're the best and the brightest. You live in New York. New York City. That's right. We're the smartest. We're the best. We're the most talented. We're the richest. And what if today, today, here's what I want you to know. Life is not about you. You're not important. Life is hard. You're not in control. You're going to die one day. And what if today, today the invitation for each one of us is to, to be reminded whatever your net worth is, whatever your LinkedIn profile says, whatever school you went to, What if today we could come before the God of heaven and earth and actually come with the kind of disposition that he wants us to have, a disposition of surrender, a disposition with open hands of saying, God, I give up control over my relationships. I give up control over my future. I give up control over my finances. I give up control. Now, this does not mean that we never ask God for things. In fact, the rest of the Lord's Prayer would actually uh, invite us to ask God for things. But don't you see the initial prayer and the initial kind of statement is a prayer of the disposition that we are to have from the very beginning. A disposition of surrender, of open hands, of saying, God, your name, your kingdom, your will. And that's the invitation to each one of us. Now, here's what you might be saying, though. Okay, if I do that, though, then don't I lose my center? Don't I lose myself in the midst of this? You know what's interesting is that Jesus would actually teach us when it comes to this idea of losing your life or losing yourself. Check out what he says. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will also lose it. No, he says, will find it. We'll actually find it. But you know how this goes, right? What is he saying here? Those who think they can save themselves, those who think that with their their mental acumen, with their degrees, with all of their wealth, can somehow save your life and give you ultimate salvation and ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose. Those of you who think, when I get this relationship, that's when things will come together for me. All of us who think these thoughts around what I can control and how I can save my life. I mean, here's what Jesus is basically saying. Don't you see how fleeting those things are? you'll actually lose your life. But when you actually lose your life, when you actually admit that life is hard, you are not important, you're not in control, life is not about you, you're going to die one day. When you actually lose your life, 
Isn't this the irony and the beauty of the good news of Jesus? He says, when you actually start to surrender, that's when you'll actually be free. That's when you'll be free because now you're living life with open hands. You're entrusting yourself to someone else, to that higher power. You're entrusting your children to that higher power. You're entrusting your future, whatever might befall. And so when we come to God now, we can come entrusting ourselves to Him. Now, of course, that begs the question, though. If I'm entrusting myself to God, why is He worth entrusting my life to? What if this God is a malevolent God, someone who's out to get me, someone who who is out to spite me, someone who hurts me? Well, see, this is why God would send his son, Jesus, who being very God himself would send his son. And you know what's so fascinating about this prayer, this very prayer that Jesus would invite us to, that he would model, that he would teach us your name, your kingdom, your will. What's so fascinating about it is that he would actually also pray this prayer. Check out what he prays before he dies. Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 42, he says, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. The cup is an imagery of he knows he's going to his death. He's dying on a cross on our behalf. And this is what Jesus says. If it's possible for this not to happen, take it away. But may your will be done. You see, God doesn't invite us to pray this prayer in a vacuum. He doesn't just say, see, give up and surrender all things because I told you so. No, he would send his son Jesus to pray this prayer to say, your will be done. This Jesus would actually yield his own life, his own heart, his own will, So that you might know that the God of heaven and earth is a God who is for you. Who would give his life for you. Who in the midst of whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, this God of heaven and earth, the God that he's inviting you to surrender to, is not some malevolent God, but actually a God whose love is so full and free that he would yield and give away his own life and his own will so that you and I might be able now to entrust with a freedom, with a buoyancy, with a hopefulness that this world can never take away.